a controversial military history sparked violence in the United States. Donald Trump issues a threat to a South American neighbor. We have many options for Venezuela, including a possible military option if necessary. We take a look at the British operation in Estonia and HMS Queen Elizabeth sails into her new Portsmouth home. Hello there, welcome to the programme. Tim Cooper standing in for Kate Chabot. It's been another interesting week in the world of Donald Trump. The US president's been under fire for his comments about violence at rallies in Virginia. At one point, he condemned racism and far-right groups, but has refused to single them out for the violence, insisting both sides were equally to blame. One woman died in the violence as groups arrived to oppose the far-right protesters in Charlottesville. The rallies centred around opposition to the removal of a statue of Civil War General Robert E. Lee. But why is this such a controversial move? Well, to look at this, we're joined by Professor of American Studies at the University of Birmingham, Scott Lucas, an old friend of SITREP. So what are these problems um, with this particular statue and this whole concept of the Civil War and the Confederacy that seem to be exercising so many people in, um, in, in America? Well, I think first it's important not to conflate white supremacy and the Confederate issue. Most of the protesters that were in Charlottesville that caused violence last weekend were using the issue of a Confederate statue as a pretext for other issues, uh, criticism of Jews, uh, criticism of people of color, et cetera. But on the Confederate statue issue, which has been an issue, you know, it's been there for decades. I can remember it when I was growing up in the U.S. South. There is a conflict between the question of are these statues part of our, you know, our heritage, our culture that help us to remember where we come from, or are they symbols of a confederacy, which of course was based on a system of slavery, which continued to practice discrimination and oppression even after the Civil War, um, all the way up to and even beyond the 1960s and the Civil Rights Movement. So those symbols, especially when they're in public spaces, you get these conflicting emotions with people who aren't necessarily seeing this as being an issue of a racial divide, but they are very much divided over what it means to be Confederate or in the South in the 21st century. Christopher Lee. Do you know, I spent a bit of my early life growing up in, in the United States, part of an American family, and I remember being taught very early on, uh, this is in New York, that if I wanted to understand, and I was then about seven or eight, if I wanted to understand the people of, that lived with us, I had to understand the American Civil War, that it was a period in 1861-65 um, that still defines a lot of the emotions of America. If you want to understand America, understand that. And when I hear something that happens in Charlottesville, as you know, Scott says, don't get yourself mixed up with the Civil War and what happened then. Uh, these people are nasty people. They did nasty things for all sorts of other reasons. There is still this, this objectivity that comes out about iconoclasm, for example, uh, that you must not have these statues, you must not have these reminders of of not just like, say, in the United Kingdom, there's Nelson sitting on his column, uh, therefore he is a hero. It's a much deeper thing, and it is a much deeper thing to remember, for example, the Confederates, at the beginning of the war, the statement of the war was really the right to have slaves. 
and it is something which I, when I go back to the United States, there's quite a lot. I still get people talking about that, that it is something which the Europeans will never understand. Yes, do you think that, Scott? Do you think it is very much an American issue because of the very specific issues around the Civil War, as Christopher was talking of there? Yeah, I, I think this is very much something which is specific to U.S. history because there's a conflict. I mean, the whole myth that we have that you might, you know, have it resonate over here is that we are this, you know, united country, that we were forged as one with the great Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. But the reality is, is that the United States was made up of different factions and different groups, and that the issue of states' rights, which was bound up with slavery, was a contentious issue that that split the country and that even after the war ends despite what lincoln says you know in the gettysburg address that we can all reunite we didn't you know the southerners will remember going through the period of reconstruction or at least white southerners and feeling as this was oppression from the north and then fighting back against that reconstruction of course what whites did was continue to discriminate against blacks to discriminate against other people and that as recently as a generation ago, you had American politicians that were still very closely linked to far-right groups, um, including some who were still active in U.S. public life. And, and so I'm not saying that outsiders can't appreciate it, as Christopher has and so on, but there is just an emotion that is specific to being bound up and growing up with this as part of almost like your inner makeup, your psyche for decades. You know, I remember my, my mother came back. She was at the, the I Have a Dream uh, march. And I remember my mother talking about this a couple of weeks later and talking about Martin Luther King and said, you know, he's now into politics and that's not where he should be, etc., etc. But she said, and this is so important, we are now 100 years on from the Civil War. And if you think about the everybody getting back together again and discussing it and white supremacy. This is post-Second World War period. Mm. This is the 1950s. This is the 1960s and the 70s. And that sense that it is it has not gone away, we shouldn't look back and say, oh, that was a thing from the 19th century. It was. It, it's something far more recent. Scott, I just want to quickly wrap up this conversation with your thought on how Mr Trump has handled this. Has he got it wrong? Oh, gosh. I mean, he, he's gotten it so wrong. I mean, in the specific political sense, when you have people who are not only carrying Confederate flags, but when they are carrying weapons, when they're carrying swastikas, when they're carrying, you know, Heil Trump salutes, you denounce that. You know, you do not simply use the Confederate statue issue as a, as a deflection not to call out those who are committing violence and who are ripping American society apart. And even a few minutes before we went on air, Trump is continuing to do this in a series of tweets where he's continuing to exploit this Southern heritage issue to try to divert away from the fact that he is excusing white supremacy. So yes, he's gotten it wrong for himself, but I think even after Mr. Trump is gone, which will be sooner rather than later, he's gotten it wrong for the sake of the country because he's just exacerbating division. And it's time we really got beyond the wounds and the divisions of the Civil War and of the racism that's marked the country for so long and started a dialogue in which, you know, all people feel represented in American history. Scott Lucas from the University of Birmingham, thanks very much indeed for joining us. Well, last week Donald Trump was threatening military action against North Korea. Then at the weekend, it was Venezuela. 
He said military intervention could be an option to solve the crisis there. The US vice president has been touring South America this week and Mike Pence defended the president's comments. President Nicolas Maduro's new constituent assembly has been widely criticised as anti-democratic with violent protests across Venezuela. But is there a real prospect of a US military intervention? Earlier on, I spoke to Richard Lapper, an associate fellow at Chatham House and a specialist on Latin America. The question really is, how do you manage this? How do you begin to corral uh, Maduro and the, and, and the left? Do you do it through military threats, invasion threats? And that's generally not, been, not worked in the past for the US. In fact, you know, one of the reasons why this situation is so radicalized at the moment is that the U.S. gave a nod and a wink to a uh, a military coup attempt in 2002, which failed to get rid of Chavez. And, and that's kind of you know, polarized the situation. So, you know, in essence, what should be happening now is the exertion of greater diplomatic, economic pressure, uh, extension of selective sanctions, which the U.S. has already imposed on leading figures within the regime who are now have had their assets frozen and are unable to travel inside the U.S. One of the problems here is that, in a broader sense, if you're looking at America, this is the second time that Trump's intimated military action as a possibility. If he doesn't do something, people around the world are just going to think, well, he just says this and there's absolutely nothing to worry about. Is there the, the slight risk that, you know, he sees a country, as you've elucidated there, that is falling apart, that he might just chance his arm here? I think, you know, there's always a danger in rhetoric, you know. I mean, that's why diplomats exist, because, you know, we don't generally conduct these sort of international relations through threat, really. And I think that... Um, you know, the danger is that the kind of rhetoric that Donald Trump is likely to come out with is likely to do more harm than good. It's likely to unite uh, people around Nicolas Maduro, make him seem to be a victim of uh, U.S. sanctions. The Venezuelan regime would like nothing more than the U.S. to be aggressive because it allows it to scapegoat uh, someone else for problems which are very much of the regime's own making. This is a country that has huge oil reserves, some of the largest, if not the largest, oil reserves in the world, and they have reduced themselves to penury through colossal economic mismanagement and corruption. Is America, although it's mismanaged its response to what's going on in Venezuela, is part of the concern from the US about what it might see as a growing influence from China and Russia in what, as you've said, is very much an area they see as their own sphere of influence in their own backyard? That's right. And that, that's, that is, you know, a, a big strategic issue, I think, growing, coming, coming to the fore here. I mean, over the last 10, 15 years, Chinese economic influence in Latin America has been growing. The Chinese are very interested in raw materials, particularly food. They're interested in minerals, iron ore. They're interested in, in, in energy, in oil. Uh, and Venezuela's loomed large in their uh, in, the, in these interests. Uh, there's very large amounts of money have been loaned uh, to Venezuela for construction projects. Large amounts of money being invested by the Chinese, um, and so there is a relationship there. The Chinese are dissatisfied, I think, with the way things are going because of you know since many of these projects have come to naught. Into the breach step. Uh, Rosneft, the very large Russian uh, oil company, which has been buying up uh, Venezuelan oil assets. It's been lending money to Venezuela. It's also been striking 
arms deals with Venezuela and with Venezuela's ally Cuba. And this is quite important, I think, uh, in, a, in, a, in a geopolitical context. Venezuela's economic implosion is so severe that they do need a sugar daddy. That sugar daddy has been China, I think, to some to some, a very large extent, and I think it could it is becoming Russia as well. So that's where we are. Uh, there is an issue for, to be confronted here. There we go. That was Richard Lapper, associate fellow at Chatham House, speaking to me earlier on. Still to come on today's programme, watching the Royal Navy's largest warship move into her new home. It was wonderful, and of course, the first time we brought this aircraft carrier into a base port Portsmouth, so a very special day for everyone on board. Now, Sweden's increasing the amount of money it spends on the armed forces amid increased tension with Russia in the Baltics. The government of Sweden says an extra $1 billion is to be spent every year. Sweden's military says it needs the money to rebuild its strength after years of underinvestment and greater demands on its operational capabilities. Let's talk to Christopher Lee, the BFBS defence analyst on this. Christopher, your take on what Sweden are doing. Well, it is a rebuild, but there is something much deeper than this. Uh, Sweden's obviously a very small country, as we all know. It's got a small population. It has uh, a great political depth, uh, which hasn't moved very much over the past sort of 15, 20 years. It also has an increasing problem with refugees. It has a very much an awareness that it is part of that Baltic, Baltic thing. If you go to somewhere like uh, Istad, for example, which is on the Baltic coast, I tell you, have you ever seen, uh, I can't remember his name, Voldemort or something like that, a, a detective thing? It all takes place there. And this is where the military is, the Navy is. And they have developed this sort of uh, image to the rest of the Baltic. Are you neutral? Yes. Uh, are you with us? Well, yes. Um, but if we look at what you've got, for example, the Vigan aircraft uh, corporation still building if we look at what you're doing you build smashing stuff but you couldn't use it for anything you couldn't take part with us you have no facility to do that and what sweden has got to do and this is the tricky part it's almost got to decide what's its future and then start again and that's why it's, it's we're talking here very very big kroner here and we're not talking about some sort of another five five or six percent increase I mean, does Sweden see their future militarily as being a sort of uh, defender of the Baltics, as it were? No. No? No, it doesn't. I mean, it says it does. It was yeah. part of that defence because it's got that responsibility. Um, but it is, it is, it's got something else. When you, when you think its relations with the other countries, like its relations with Norway, uh, it's a very tricky relation with Norway, and Norway is very much part of the NATO sort of defence of the, yeah. uh, that part of the world. Next door with Finland, it's not quite sure because nobody's quite sure about Finland what that position would be. And Therefore, uh, Sweden always feels vulnerable. But it, what it does see, it sees that corner of the Baltic states on the other side of the Baltic Sea. It sees that as a potential uh, sense of aggression, which it could be invaded in the north, i.e. Sweden could be invaded in the north, in order to keep it quiet, to neutralise it almost. And so it, it this reflects a new awareness. I think of the Swedes themselves, who suddenly realise that we're very pleased about what we've got but it's not that efficient and given given a confrontation 
there's not very much we could do to defend the Swedish people. It's not defend our part in some sort of alliance, uh, a coalition of the winning, the willing. It's simply to defend our people. And so think, think very much homeland security. Think about a defence force rather than a strike for Sweden. I mean, Russia probably isn't going to be best pleased about this. We've seen what they've done in other areas where countries, sovereign states, have felt threatened. I'm thinking of Ukraine and so forth. Yeah, there is there, there is a second side of this, though. Uh, the, the, the Russians would always see Ukraine as as a difficult sort of part of Europe, and when you consider what its role was in 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 Ukraine, and therefore it sees that what's there, you can get separatism, you can get threats. You don't get separatism in Sweden. Sweden is very clearly not a threat to Russia. Russia also likes, to some extent, the idea of Sweden getting it right militarily, because when you get it right militarily, there are very there are fewer chances, the fewer risks of things getting out of hand, of miscalculation, etc. Also, it knows exactly what it is. And also, in the way the Russian military works, and certainly in the, in the uh, sort of de- thing called the deployments checker, um, it can actually say, right, that lot, you look after Sweden, we understand it, and they will understand Sweden very, very well, because being Sweden, they'll give most of the information about what they're doing out to anybody who wants to buy it. <laughs> It's a very fair point, Christopher. Thank you very much indeed for now. Well, uh, let's move just a little bit across the uh, Baltic there. And soldiers from Five Rifles, as we know, we've talked about before on this programme, they've been taking part in exercises in Estonia as part of the NATO mission there, established in the wake of Russian aggression in Eastern Europe. Op Cabrit is the newest NATO deployment for the army, and it comes under the banner of Enhanced Forward Presence, EFP. Charlene Guy, our BFBS reporter, has visited the operation. She spoke to Colonel Giles Harris, commander of EFP, and asked how the operation will evolve over the next five years. It's very difficult and probably unwise to try and compare Operation Cabrit with anything else. It's in a class of its own, really. I think a great opportunity about this deployment is that it is operational, so it has a reality to it. Um, the Estonians, you know, they, they have lived with this problem set for many, many years, and we're now on board. So I think people coming to Estonia and to Poland on this operation can have a real sense of anticipation that they're part of something that's real, which is excellent, is what soldiers want. But of course, unlike other operations, it brings really good novel training opportunities as well. So the guys will find themselves training in an environment that they would not have experienced before. Heavily forested, pretty wet, and it's going to be pretty cold as well. Pitted against uh, a fellow NATO country on their exercises, which is great fun and makes learning really really fast uh, and really cooperative, which is good too. So novel training. And then I think lastly, it's going to be a really good lived experience. I mean, Estonia is an awesome country. Poland's a great place to be. Americans are great hosts. And I think the guys will go away with lots of really good stories um, and good experiences too. So as we grow into this over the, over the next few years, I think each of those three things will become more and more evident. And I would say um, that Operation Cabrera is, is definitely uh, something to look forward to. There we go. That was Colonel Giles Harris, commander of the Enhanced Forward Presence in Estonia, talking to our BFBS radio reporter Charlene Guy. And I'm pleased to say Charlene has made it back from the Baltic and joins us in the SITREP studio. Charlene, what did you expect it would be like when you went out there? And what was it actually like? Well, it's weird, isn't it? Before you get there, you don't, you can't imagine what the setup would be like with mm. the British troops there. So I thought it was going to be quite a bleak area. And I'm sure in the, in the summer months it's lovely and sunny, but in the winter it would be very bleak and cold. I thought there was going to be a lot of frustration 
orchestrated troops. I mean, this is a an operation that's really hard to manage, so to speak, uh, with, you know, how do you, you know, put those boundaries in place when you're starting an operation? And also I was confused about how the mission looked, like what would it look like? You're deterring, you're reassuring and you're showcasing that you're prepared to defend the country. Difficult so, balance, isn't yeah, it? So yeah, so how do you demonstrate that and with what, you know, equipment and kit and things? So um, when I actually got out there, I did see that the troops themselves are, are being challenged because there's so much training that goes on. They've been describing it as a bit like back-to-back Batis exercises. Um, and also I, I saw an integrated battle group who are working with other nationalities and also it's not just five rifles, the different cat badges from across the army, which I think everybody's quite enjoying, you know, that that uh, joined upness. And then the military base is being developed so quickly. Uh, people that have been there since February have seen how quickly and fast-paced that the changes are happening to improve the welfare and the facilities for those on deployment. How is it with the British and the their partners in this? You know, the other NATO nations involved and also their Estonian hosts. So when I was there, I saw an interoperability interoperability exercise where they were using the US Air Force alongside the British troops. The five rifles were deploying from some of the air capability and they were supporting the ground uh, attacks. Um, it, it seems like it's very coherent. Everybody's working together. They enjoy working with different nationalities. And then on base themselves, um, the Estonian Defence Force owns the military base that the Brits are based on. Uh, but obviously you've got different nationalities coming in. So at the moment it's the French Foreign Legion. In January it'll be the Danish. Uh, so I saw some Danes that are due to come out and liaising already. And they are looking forward to working with the Brits. And it goes back to the likes of Afghanistan, where they've worked alongside them previously. This is a, a different type of tour. But it seems that they're kind of picking off where they left off in Afghanistan. So yeah, I mean we we the Brits as it were got on extremely well with the Danes and the Estonians yeah. in Afghanistan. That certainly I saw that and you did when you were out in, in Camp Bastion. Christopher, what's your take on on by the sound of it, that they're working very hard and it sounds a little bit to me as if it's old school NATO, i.e. getting together, working hard together. Yeah, with, with, without all the problems uh, that were in old school NATO when you turn up with your uh, you know, with your uh, APC or tank or whatever, and say, can anybody here uh, fuel me up? And they'd all look around and say, well, no, this, this connection doesn't work with you, etc. That is all changing. The idea of, uh, of the interoperability is changing. The other thing that's changing, which I think in the longer term will be the most important, and that is the ability that you have to, let's say you, you withdraw, like 20 Brigade would, would withdraw, but it leaves its kit. And so when you're going to go back, because there is an emergency, even a terrible one like transition to war, um, you can get your guys back there very quickly. Everything they need is in place. More than that, it's being monitored, looked after. You'll go straight back into the sort of operation that you've seen. The other thing that's happening, and I don't know what you, you thought on this, Giles Harris, the colonel you were talking to, there was a sense if he knew what was going on. There's a quiet sense of uh, pretty high level understanding of all this, which in the old days you'd get, well, we've got blue forces here, and we've got <laughs> orange forces here, and we will give them what's for if they come anywhere near us. It's all different now, isn't it? Yeah, the there's, people a, are different. there's a tight control. There's definitely a tight control. And I think because it's so new, there's the worry that you don't, you know, 
there doesn't there's no scope for anything going wrong because they they want to control it so tightly well the eyes of everybody particularly russia is on what is happening there we, we've alluded to afghanistan and we have done that working together there before for real but just finally charlene i'm, I'm keen on how the british are living out there because there's a lot of talk before they went they'd be kept on base and they wouldn't get on with the community and there's a lot of fear that russia would stoke up tension between the british and the nato personnel and the local community but what's your experience well from when i was out there i saw quite a, a variety of different um integration with the local community i was out in the, the little town uh, which is in tapa which is next to the where the battle group are based and the, the local population they are interested and fascinated by the soldiers the the british military are giving out wristbands with hashtag we are allies on with the flags on and they hand them out and they're intrigued and they want them there that's the the, the feeling that i got um they're happy that they're there they're a good reassurance and they're inviting them to sporting events they want them to participate with what they do in the local community engage with the local people and it was it was in extraordinary to see and I do believe that little town of Tapa slowly but surely I mean they're getting investment already to better roads better buildings that's can only grow and grow and I, I do see and envisage it being almost like a, a Germany in the future interesting hashtag yeah. what was that hashtag we are allies I like that that's, yeah. a, that's a clever thing by to the do. way do you remember uh, going back to what it was like with NATO mm. so you had the guy going along in a Land Rover afterwards you know because the achievement just knocked off the front door or something like that with a cow <laughs> yes. pen in Germany, yeah. 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 Uh, OK, and signing the chitty, and no wonder Tap is enjoying themselves. <laughs> There's going to be a lot more saunas as well. Oh, no, we didn't even get onto saunas, did we? The saunas had one of those in Camp Bassi. They invited me in, but I wasn't uh, brave enough. Anyway, Charlene Guy, thank you very much indeed for joining to, uh, us today on SITREP. Why am I talking about my experience of saunas? I don't really know. What I can talk about, he said, moving swiftly on, is my experience of HMS Queen Elizabeth, because I was very lucky yesterday to get up at the crack of dawn and go down to Portsmouth Naval Base and stand there on the corner of South uh, railway jetty and watch HMS Queen Elizabeth steam into Portsmouth Harbour. It happened on schedule exactly at nine minutes past seven. She came in past the round tower. There were dozens and dozens of small craft out in the Solent escorting her in. It was epic, really. And the tens of thousands of people who came down to Gosport, Portsmouth, the South Sea, even up on Portsdown Hill in Cosham, looking down on the harbour, had a spectacular view as she came in and berthed without a hitch. Uh, Christopher Lee, I had a great day, as you can probably tell from my wittering explanation I'm of quite what jealous. happened there. I know you are. <laughs> You've been waiting for this for so long, as has the Royal Navy, as has Britain. And whatever the naysayers may say about the lack of F-35B Lightning twos, about the lack of personnel to crew these ships, going forward and so on and so forth it was a great day yesterday in my view what do you think well i think you know somebody comes and put a what's a ship that size sixty-five thousand tons never been seen in portsmouth harbour before and at seven minutes past seven in the morning it's supposed to be alongside and guess what seven minutes past seven it is alongside you know then you can't help being but there is this darker this darker image at the moment. Uh, small things such as you can't afford the aeroplanes, such as the Americans are going to modify those F-35s because of what the Russians are doing to counter them, um, and that we are going to be, we're going to have 140, whatever it is, uh, over the lifetime of these ships, but in fact we might not be getting them now or who knows what. And the the exchange rate between the dollar and the pound is making everything more expensive. These are the uncertainties, mm. which uh, I think probably every ship or every major battle group has actually had these. But it does bring back something that is going to be looked at by the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Within two years, 
and it ties in to some extent with Brexit, but within two years it is very likely that the Defence Ministry will actually have quite a defence review Mm. Uh, which will not be setting off the idea, how do you save 10%. That defence review will be, what are we going to be using all our forces, our three forces, for in the next 20, 25, 30 years? Now, to some extent, that's already being done, and it's being done on a daily basis by the army especially. But the point is, with the Navy, you've got a battle group all set up, which will operate, presumably, would have to operate with other battle groups as part of other navies. Uh, you could even get to a point, if this works properly, especially in Europe, that you'll have a French captain of the Queen Elizabeth in the, in the future. It, you know, the exchange, it, it's that sort of far embellished. But the point to watch for now, within two years, is what, do we going, what are we going to be using the, the, the British forces for and with whom? And also, therefore, you've got to identify... The United Kingdom has got to have a policy of identifying what their foreign policy is yeah. because the military, after all, is only a way of enforcing that foreign policy. Yeah, all good questions, and I'm sure that will come out, but uh, it will linger long in my memory, uh, the ship coming in yesterday. Christopher Lee, thanks very much indeed for joining us on SITREP. I'm going to end with what a, a captain, a naval captain, said to me yesterday, and we were looking at HMS Queen Elizabeth as she was coming in, and he said to me, do you know what? The last captain of that ship hasn't yet been born. Now, that's quite a stunning thought, isn't it? That the last captain of a ship that's entered service or is about to be commissioned in December hasn't yet been born. That's SITREP for this week. Kate Chabot returns next week. Thank you very much indeed uh, for joining me in the interim. You can catch up by going to bfps.com SITREP. From us all, thanks for listening. Bye-bye. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.